New Thinking Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring consciousness and the martial arts. My guest is James Tunney, a Renaissance man who is a poet, a visual artist, a novelist, a lawyer, and a scholar. In addition to his many interests and talents, he is a lifelong student of the martial arts. James is also author of two dystopian novels, Ireland, I Don't Recognize Who She Is, and Blue Lies September. His other books include The Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution, and The Mystery of the Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Age of Scientism. James lives in Gothenburg, Sweden, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome again, James. What a pleasure to be having another conversation with you. Uh, thank you very much, Jeff. Happy New Year to you. I think we'll have to retain our sense of humor this year. And I was thinking today that the, we're talking, going to talk about violence, and the word violence has all those words in it. It has love, it has evil, it has nice, vile, and so on. So I thought it was interesting. Well, we'll be talking about the martial arts, and I suppose it's hard to discuss them without bringing up the fact that they are occasionally violent, although they don't need to be, I suppose. It's an undercurrent through, through all this debate about uh, what the martial arts are, and perhaps it's useful for us to define them and where they come from or the context. And for example, if we look back in, in history, we see that there is re recordings of the Prophet Muhammad engaging successfully and defeating a, a, a renowned wrestler uh, in Arabia uh, a long time ago. So that, that was that's an interesting hist historical context. But in according to Muslim scholars, there are prohibitions on engagement in martial arts, and, and there are there's a spectrum of views within the scholarly world about what is appropriate in sporting contexts uh, or not. But right back to, to Plato, we see Plato was a grappler. He engaged in grappling. And if we look through great literature, we see that uh, Virgil, for example, describes a boxing match in the Aeneid. And it, it runs throughout the, uh, tr throughout the history of literature and in all these contexts, there's great discussions about what we mean, what's involved. There's ideas of contest, of theatricality, of championing things, of, of, of champions. The, the word arena comes from the Latin word for sand. And it refers to the, the pit where warriors used to have contests. So it was a central activity and central sport in all traditions. So fighting is universal. So my interest in, in the martial arts is because of that perennial aspect to it. And when we look at all these debates about the nature of sports, about what is permissible, about the origin of violence and use in the martial context, we see that there are a number of issues that recur. There are two major issues that recur for me. Firstly, there's the the, the paradox of violence, the notion of the ambivalence and ambiguity of violence. For example, that ambiguity is reflected in certain books, such as When Buddhists Attack, for example, a recent, a recent example, where by scholars, or that scholar, I think, Jeffrey Mann, looked at the recurrence of violence and violent traditions uh, within Buddhism. So we have a very, in the West, we have a very simple idea of what Buddhism entails, but we see there's a violent stream within Buddhism as well, which scholars are looking at again. So this paradox is there. That paradox uh, recurs again and again. We see it in Dr. Strangelove. Remember in Dr. Strangelove, there's a fight breaks out, and I think Peter Sellers says, uh, gentlemen, no fighting, this is a war room. So... 
if if mass industrial violence is okay, but interpersonal violence is frowned upon from people that want to see violence out of sight, out of mind. Uh, and that paradox is Francis Bacon, for example, uh, another artist that was very interested in violence and the depiction of violence. He said that, he said or something to these words to this effect, he said, uh, people say my paintings are violent, but how could my paintings be worse than the horrors you read about in the newspapers every day? And he's right. So he, he he's showing the conflict between the depiction of violence uh, and, and violence itself. It's even in the cartoon, a cartoon that maybe every psychotherapist should have on their wall. Or the, You remember that old cartoon where you see a person who has been beaten up lying on the street and then you see a, a psychologist or a psychotherapist comes along, maybe a sociologist, and the caption is, the person who did this needs my help. So you, you see the, the bit of it. So that paradox is, is always there. And associated with that paradox is the crucial idea for me of what examining fighting or the martial arts involves. And that's the idea of the shadow. Uh, and who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? Only the shadow knows. <laughs> that was the radio pro. That was the, I didn't do the laugh fully because I wouldn't stop. But that was the that was the radio program uh, about a character called the shadow. And the shadow is is of course we're familiar with the shadow in the Jungian sense. But then we say, well, well, what is the shadow? And it's it's a recurrent theme in fighting and the martial arts about this idea of the shadow. In fact. The great mythical Irish warrior Cú Cullen was actually trained by a woman warrior on the west coast of Scotland, according to the legends, and her name was Scawhawk, which refers to shadow or shadowy. So this idea is there, uh, it recurs again, it recurs in the idea of, of the hidden, the person in the, in, in, the, in the dark, in the shadows, in the wood, in the forest, Robin Hood, the ninja, the person that goes up the mountains in the in the Yamabushi in 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 Japan, and for me, the idea is that that shadow may represent the primitive physiological and psychological or original imprints within us, and that they have been there from the start in in order for us to survive, and that the failure to recognize them. And a failure to articulate them or to produce them into a, a useful and constructive uh, disciplined context uh, can result in inappropriate manifestations thereof. So my argument, as, as, as you know, Jeff, I've, I've tried to emphasize that my, my theme in all this is that there's been a failure of spiritual evolution. And I don't think that that failure is going to be approached by solving material problems it's we have to look at spiritual evolution itself and in that context we have to look at that inherent beast if you like that inherent shadow and my argument is in favor of its articulation in favor of its uh, manifestation as a positive force and that's the basis for example of aikido and the idea of transmutation i suppose or the idea the alchemy to tran transfer it into to a positive force. And also the founder of Aikido as a matter of interest uh, was, had some mystical experiences which led him to, to uh, suggesting this uh, and to, to instantiating this uh, martial art. So we can see a complex relationship uh, between the different elements. Now, I think a good thing to do at this point, James, would be to inform our viewers about your own personal background in, in the martial arts. I understand that really it's, it's very deep in your family. Not only was your father a very successful amateur boxer, but your three daughters are also engaged in martial arts practice. Well, uh, that's right. Now, I'm going to put a caveat right from the start, so I won't be getting a lot of emails. I'm not talking as a martial arts practitioner here. I'm a beginner in my eyes in all these things. Although I have dabbled, been a dilettante, been uh, in an eclectic way in, in the martial arts myself, 
I do so as a participant observer who is interested in the way that the group of, if you like, fighting scholars, I don't put myself in, I'm not in that category, uh, but in the way that they do, uh, the sociologists who embed themselves in, in, in the practice in order to understand the bill. So I, I've been interested in it for what I, I, I can learn on my spiritual journey. So that's the context. I'm not saying it as a martial arts practitioner, and that's out of respect for the people that dedicate their lives to, to, to martial arts and are very advanced. So I, I, do, I present these arguments in a, in a humble fashion. But um, from the time I was very small, my father showed me how to throw punches because he was, he was a decent uh, Irish amateur boxer. He won some championships and he fought against fellas, for example, one chap who was a European heavyweight champion, an amateur champion. There was good boxers around in Ireland. In Ireland, Ireland is one of the only countries, if not the only country, to have a dedicated amateur or national boxing stadium. So when he was fighting, the, the fights would be broadcast on the radio. There was a lot of interest and a lot of good boxers. It is one of the martial arts that Ireland has been particularly in, involved in. And if you look at the early heavyweight champions, for example, in the United States, they have an Irish connection. John L. Sullivan, Corbett, of course, Gene Tunney, as we, we'll talk about. So uh, so he was a good boxer. He showed, he showed me the punches. He's, he, he, we, we used to stay up, watch the Ali fights. Of course, Muhammad Ali was a great hero around the world and in Ireland. They always respected fighters. Bruce Lee was another very popular person in, in, in Ireland among all, all my peers. Um, but there, there is this very strong tradition. He, he, he educated me on boxing, but he was very, very clear. He didn't want me to engage in it because his view by then was that you sustain uh, too much injury to the head, which actually some, going back to the starting point, some Muslim scholars make that argument as well, and they argue that's why it's for, it should be forbidden. So that that's an ongoing debate. And of course, we have the medical and scientific context. So he said he didn't want me to uh, engage in boxing. But despite that, I did train a bit. For example, in Trinity College, they have a, a very good boxing gym. And you have you had a very good trainer there, which I, I only went very occasionally, but it was, it was a guy called Fred Teat, and he had won a silver medal in the Olympics. So when you start off in boxing, unlike other sports, you get straight into the combat situation. There's no lead up usually in a lot of the, that was the way it was in the, in the gyms in Dublin. So when you're in the ring with someone like that, you begin to understand the, the great techniques involved. So he had a, a masterful way of parrying punches with the slightest move of his hand. So you'd, You'd apply all your force to a punch, and he would, by a, by a, a small movement, deflect your punch. For example, uh, and you learned a lot by looking at some of these thing, these things. There were three good, there were three brothers in Trinity. I think they were in Trinity um, at the time, all in Trinity at the time, who they all won Irish championships on one night, I believe. The Crystal brothers, and one of them was a surge, a surgeon or a doctor. One of them was a, or became a barrister, and one became an engineer. So there was there was, there was a kind of intellectual ethos in, in that uh, element. He also, my father also did work associated with that. He was a a bouncer, a doorman, and uh, th that was uh, a tough job uh, at that time. And he would have met a, or been friends with people like Brendan Bean. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He was he was an Irish playwright who had been in prison. Uh, for being a member of the IRA and for, for when he was 16 trying to launch a bombing campaign in Britain. Uh, but he was a famous playwright that influenced people like Ginsberg and that in the States. They, Ginsberg knew him. And uh, so so he, he would meet him. He would have met people like that through boxing. Uh, Bean had a very good statement on, uh, on violence or one of these. He, he had some very good one-liners. He said... The terrorist is the one with the small bomb, which I think is, is an interesting one to reflect about, uh, of course, because the state is the one that ultimately inflicts the, 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 the most uh, devastation. Uh, as well as that, there is a, a family connection in a, in a book by Jane Tunney's son. He describes me as a distant cousin. That's about right. So I'm, I'm, when I'm referring to Jane Tunney, I'm not emphasizing uh, that connection too much, but because of that, uh, because of that connection, 
I, I began to study him. So, but as a subject matter, he's very, very interesting to study. His name was was James Tunney, and he his father was born in Mayo, like my father was, uh, and he was brought up, or he, he was born in New York. By the time in 1927, he had a fight with Jack Dempsey, who he beat twice. He had a fight in Chicago. The attendance at the fight was 120,000 people. Uh, incredible! It was an incredible event. The audience on radio was was estimated at 50 million around the world. There was thousands waiting for news in places like Rio, Shanghai, Ecuador. They there was a woman on death row apparently who was allowed before her execution to 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 listen to the fight. They broadcast it in some of the prisons to all the prisoners. It was a huge cultural event. So you had all the film stars, etc. So this was a so he was a prize fighter. He was involved in the he had the first million dollar purse in the twenties, huge attendances at, at both the matches, and as a he's a figure that's been neglected about because he's overshadowed by the person he beat, which is Jack Dempsey. And if you begin to look at what he wrote about prize fighting and his approach to prize fighting, you see one stream which is very very important in 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 the martial arts it's the pragmatic stream it's it's the basis on which for example jiguro kano would be another pragmatist looking at what works or the gracies for example uh, the founders or one of the main groups behind brazilian jiu-jitsu they would be a pragmatic stream as well they look at what works and gene tony was a person that used he was one of the first people to use film to study his opponents he studied his opponents intensely he read literature and he wasn't liked because he read literature gene tunney's advice or jack dempsey's advisors believed they could beat him because he was obviously soft if he was reading books so uh, he studied books he took inspiration from books george bernard shaw wrote a book about a boxer gene tunney made a comment that george bernard shaw didn't understand the psychology of boxers and as a result of that, they got they became friends over a period of time. They went on holidays together, for example, and they became uh, again. Gene Tunney's son wrote this book, the uh, the prize fighter and the playwright. And I've met his son and, and, and had these discussions. And I don't know if you can see it, but uh, if you look, there's a picture of the, the the fight in Chicago. It's incredible, an incredible sporting event. But the by looking at someone who was very very successful his the lowest estimate was 68 fights with one loss and the one loss he had to a great boxer called harry greb he avenged subsequently so they used to have other decisions which weren't which were unofficial so it could have been 80 88 fights with one defeat so when a person has that type of mentality or is that successful it's a useful model to look at and his idea was about will about looking at the opponent, about looking at yourself, about working on things that could go wrong. For example, he he was able to run three miles backwards, and in the one, in the one on the one occasion when he was knocked down uh, by Jack Dempsey in in the controversial fight in Chicago in the Battle of the Long Count in twenty seven where we have Al Capone betting on on, on Dempsey, etc., and he said. He said, if you ever feel bad, just try and think of what it's like to be lying on the canvas and to have 120,000 people shouting for your opponent and shouting for you to stay down. So, I mean, it's an incredible psychological uh, example. Uh, but uh, when he got up, he used his backward running practice to evade uh, Dempsey for a while until he recovered and was able to knock Dempsey down and win the fight. So looking at these figures, th there are great there are great lessons to be learned from the psychology. They're underestimated as a source of inspiration about how to deal with problems. And of course, then when we see the lineal heavyweights like Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali is a great he's been a great role model. Uh, and remember, although he's a great pugilist, he opposed the draft or he didn't want to be drafted to fight against people on the other side of the world that he didn't have any argument with so he demonstrated as a lot of warriors do a higher the higher moral ground and in 2003 
he met Nelson Mandela at the opening of the Special Olympics in Dublin. And remember as well that Mandela was a boxer. Was a, a boxer. And furthermore, if we look at the practice of prize fighting, say, say to talk about prize fight, we can see examples of some of the issues that you discuss about the nature of dreams. And the classic example, 1947, Sugar Ray Robinson, a great boxer, uh, was going to fight a man called Jimmy Doyle. Jimmy Doyle was not his real name. He's 22-year-old, a good boxer. And the night, or, or I don't know, it was a night before, a couple of nights before, he had a dream. Sugar Ray Robinson dreamt that he saw Jimmy Doyle on the ground and that he wasn't getting up. And he woke up in a sweat and he was very, he was very concerned. He went to the, uh, the commission and he said, I don't want to go ahead with the fight. Somebody brought in a, a, a priest and possibly a minister, it depends on, on, on the, the reports. And they convinced him that it was only a dream and he should go ahead with the fight. And unfortunately, he did knock him down in the eighth round and Jimmy Doyle died a few hours later. So it's a remarkable and horrific example of the premonitionary context. And this, this is the thing that runs through the warrior tradition. The warriors can have premonitions. The warriors are close to the, the higher forces. And there is also the last example, sorry for going on, but the last example, uh, Jeff, because I think it's interesting, is this idea of the alter ego in boxing. We can see it, for example, in the great middleweights with Marvin Hagler or Thomas Hitman Hearns. The Hitman is the, the alter ego or Iron Mike Tyson. We see this idea of an alter ego. Now, what is that alter ego? Now, for some people, it's theater, like Gene Tunney was the fighting Marine. Uh, and for other people, it's not just theatre, it's a kind of suit that they they put on. We might say that it's the representation of the beast inside them. But there's a further element. If, uh, the, the last point on, on this line is that if you look back in 2018, there was an interview which was done in August. Uh, it was publicised, I think, by BT uh, on October 2018. You can see it on YouTube. And it was an interview between Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury. Tyson Fury uh, is, is a present world heavyweight champion, a lineal champion. His family were uh, uh, Irish travelers. Uh, he was brought up, up in England. Uh, and there's a great boxing tradition among uh, Irish travelers. He's, he's six foot ten, I think. And Deontay Wilder is very big. But in this, this interview before the fight, it's, it's remarkable because... Deontay Wilder claimed that he that Fury wouldn't be fighting him. He was going to be fighting his alter ego, the bronze bomber. And Fury was annoyed with this. And he said, what do you mean? Your, your alter ego, trying to interpret what, what that meant. And he said, well, these are ancestral spirits that, that, that take me over. It's a remarkable interview. It's the same issue that we have when we're looking at Teurgy. It's the same issue that we have when we're looking at the discussion that we had about Hilma of Clint, of Steiner, Blavatsky, and that that's an area that has been neglected, I think, by by some of the. the there's an area there to, to to look at that's worth examining. James, you have a fascinating history involving your connection with boxing, which is pretty much a Western tradition, but I know you are also a student of Asian martial arts. How would you compare them? Well, if you look at the person, for example, that you are represents in the West, that represents Asian mar martial arts, perhaps best is Bruce Lee. Now, when Bruce Lee came, he developed various styles again he was quite eclectic and didn't believe there should be a, a dominant style uh, and he was he was in the hong kong tradition which had taken uh, taken inspiration from traditional chinese uh, practices so but when he came to uh, to incorporate his his own style and ethos he referred back to people like Dempsey and Tunney as well. So he incorporated boxing very, very much. So there's an idea that boxing is not there in the, in, in the uh, Oriental tradition. So I, I did train uh, with my friend when, when he was in Scotland years ago on karate. And we used to train intensively for a period. Again, I'm not interested in belts, in the structures. And I'm a bit antipathetic towards the, 
the kind of cult aspect of certain martial arts or undue respect toward that, that can be there, which, which doesn't appeal to me too much. I just want to learn so in a pragmatic sense. So I have, I did train uh, intensely with, with my friend who, who was very high level uh, when he lived in Scotland and we communicate regularly and still are having the same discussions about the nature of karate and the nature of the concepts. So, so when we're talking about karate, for example, we're talking about karate do and the do is the way. So it's, it's a way, but it's not just a way to beat someone in a particular context. It's a deeper concept that it's a, uh, interpreted in a holistic sense with the idea that the principles therein can be applied in other contexts. I've also, one of my daughters said, Daddy, I want to do judo. So that, okay, because she'd, she'd seen it. So we went, brought her to the judo class. I've attended hundreds, if not thousands of hours as a parent and observed a lot of martial arts too. So the black belt, Linda said to, or her father said to me, why don't you do judo? Uh, and I said, well, that's, uh, I wasn't thinking about doing that at the time. So I said, yeah, I'll do it as a challenge. Uh, and so, so I did and did to, uh, took a few belts uh, in, in judo and learned all the, the principles. And again, you can, you can discover deep. Judo is a very pragmatic-based uh, martial art, which is uh, founded by Jiguro Kano. We have these figures like Jiguro Kano or uh, Funoshi, uh, who, uh, who, who regulates and puts together what has been there before. So Kano's developed a principle to add to jiu-jitsu or different schools of jiu-jitsu. Uh, and the principle was to try and use his uh, minimum uh, efficient force to achieve maximum effect. And he, he learned a sp specific way of breaking the balance of his opponent, which was a crucial innovation. And from there, he had a very pragmatic uh, art, which works very, very effectively. And again, in all these, my, my argument to people, my suggestion is they should experiment with these things because there's always something to learn. The challenge to me when I started doing it was to get in shape, which required that I went back to do a bit of yoga, which I had done myself years ago. And I did some of that hot yoga, which was useful to get back into, into shape. And then to learn all the things that you know as a child, to learn how to fall properly, to learn how to roll properly. And uh, I, I still practice uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Capoeira now and then because I believe that we should, we should try to. There's nothing stopping people engaging in these to learn, to challenge themselves. Uh, they don't have to have a reason to go to these places. To, all, of, all of them have something to, to tell us and there are deeper principles that can be extracted so uh, boxing is a pragmatic sport so you don't have all this to, to come to finish off your, your question boxing is very pragmatic you don't have all this esoteric uh, ideas behind it but I, I, as, I, as I mentioned in relation to Fury and, and Deontay Wilder they can also be very superstitious they can also have have ideas which are uh, outside the pragmatic domain and they can also be affected by psychological forces for example there was a, a famous Irish boxer who beat the great Chris Eubanks and it seems that Chris Eubanks believed that his opponent was using hypnosis and that kind of freaked him out a bit so you have all these these mental elements psychological elements but um, and to, to finish off on that point uh, there has been, because of the evolution of mixed martial arts through the UFC and through the challenges of the Gracie family in California and that, where they're, they're trying to see, well, which is the, the, the best martial arts? There have been in China many uh, competitions and ex exhibitions where modern mixed martial artists in a kind of Western style are challenging the old or some of the older traditional uh, practitioners to see in combat whether their styles work. And it's been, it's quite revealing that some of the, the more mystical styles don't work in combat situations. At the same time, that doesn't mean that there's not great value and that they're not there for some other purpose. Now, you also mentioned capoeira, which uh, I understand is a Brazilian tradition. And I suspect when I was in uh, Salvador, Brazil, I saw demonstrations of capoeira uh, 
El Salvador is a city with a very deep tradition of candomblé, the African-Brazilian religion. So I'm under the impression it has African antecedents. Uh, that's correct. Uh, capoeira is one of the cl classical African uh, or, uh, originating um, martial arts. and There's also a very close connection between dancing and martial arts. You'll always find this connection. In fact, I wonder sometimes whether some of the moves in Irish dancing were actually were actually martial arts before that. Some of the kicks and that they would they would fit into the martial arts repertoire. But uh, yeah, capoeira was was brought from Africa uh, to to Brazil, and it was used. It went through various manifestations. Sometimes it was associated with the criminal element, and then in recent times it's be, become a very a more conservative kind of practice in some senses, uh, but it reflects its origin, its African uh, origin. And there is an idea that some people believe that all martial arts came from, from Africa, either from Egypt, because there's a lot of old paintings in Egypt, and a kind of temple arts idea, and we see all the, the martial arts kind of represented in some of the old uh, pictures, or in, in, in a more southern and western uh, context where the, the more shamanic approaches uh, were manifest and preserved. Because when you have the capoeira, you have the, the, the group in the hota and you have people clapping in, in, in a particular beat. You have a person with the berimbau, the, the mono chord, and you have the atabake and other instruments. So they create the music the, we have the clapping, we have the two people, like in a yin and yang interaction, evading and striking and evading and striking and turning upside down and over and cartwheels. It's the greatest, for me, it's the greatest uh, movement that people can do. If you see it at a quick pace, it's quite incredible. Now, I'm sure some Christian ministers would say, oh, that looks demonic when they see what they do, but I've been at thousands of or hundreds of hours uh, watching people practice and practicing myself, and they they spend a lot of time working, getting the details right. But if you look at altered states and altered states in traditional societies, there are often simple ways that people have used to attain altered states to link to the mystical. Spinning, for example, is a simple one. So you see that spinning in the in the capoeira. So to a certain extent, it's like your sim symbol for yin-yang. You have the movement between the two fighters, performers, or players, as they are. And play is an important aspect in this. You have the, you have the chord, which is, is identifying, and in some ways it's calling down the spirits, but that element is, is, is not a necessary, or it's not really there for just ordinary players in that sense. But it is there in the background to it. And it, it, it was a, a communal, mystical uh, experience, uh, as well as a martial art. Now, people, sometimes they, there's videos on YouTube where people see a capoeirista doing loads of work and being defeated. But it's a very dangerous sport. And never underestimate a capoeirista because they, they kick very well and they evade very well and they move. And the great thing about capoeira is they move in a very deceptive way. And deception is a, is a crucial element of martial arts and learning about deception. And Maradona, who, who died recently, God rest him, he, when he was asked about his psychology of football, he said it's about deception. He said, you know, and that, that was about the shimmying and the avoiding and avoiding players. And, and so this idea about deception uh, is a very, very interesting one. And a lot of the moves in capoeira are designed to be deceptive as well as rhythmic and as well as a, 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 a very uh, communal. With regard to the spiritual antecedents of, of the Asian martial arts, you've mentioned Taoism, which of course is a, a Chinese spiritual tradition. And I know you also visited the Shaolin Temple. I think it's maybe the first Zen temple, and uh, uh, which is also a, a place where many martial arts were birthed. Yes, there's a lot of if you if you look at the the academic literature or if you talk to people in China, it's very very difficult to identify the exact nature and the exact historical context. And furthermore, we have to bear in mind that after the Cultural Revolution in China, 
a lot of the past was erased. People don't understand that until they're in China and they begin to look. But the Cultural Revolution and the, and, and the communist systems want to eradicate the past. You know, So some of the, the continuity is broken. Um, but uh, I've lectured in a number of universities over there. I've lectured to the High Court of Beijing. Uh, I've, I've always enjoyed my visits there. I've been uh, very well treated. I have a lot of respect for the people of China. I think people have to be careful in the West not to confuse a system which people inherit with the people themselves and not to project onto to, to people over there uh, political ideologies that don't represent the reality. There's, but that's another issue. Anyway, uh, so when I was teaching over there, they asked me, I was always treated like a king over there, to tell you the truth. They, they asked me where I wanted to go, and I said, I want to go to the Shaolin Temple. And it was a 15-hour train journey away, so I went with my, they assigned a companion to me who I got on very well with. And I went there. I, w I just wanted to get a sense of where its location is, the place. It, it's quite a tourist place now to some extent. Um, but the story is that Bodhidharma came there. Now, where he came from is disputed. Uh, the main tradition is he came from India, but others will say, oh, he came from Persia. And So he's a mythic figure that appears in a whole range of contexts. And he is associated with bringing... But the, the historical figure is recorded in, in, in the uh, 5th century and his, his, his meetings with the, the emperor are recorded. So there's no dispute about the existence of a, 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 the figure there. And he's associated with, with Zen Buddhism, going back to the Buddha and the Buddha, his, his lecture when someone asked him a, a certain question and he didn't answer it in words, but he held up a flower. And you remember that, you know, you know that story. I was thinking, if you give me a difficult question sometime, I might hold up a flower, see how that goes, <laughs> and remain silent. But So Zen was associated with a distrust of words and more interested in action and embodiment. And uh, the Bodhidharma is associated with the input uh, of Zen into the martial arts. And some people argue that it was associated with protection of the, the monks. But also, there's no doubt that the Taoist, the Taoist and the location of the Shaolin Temple uh, was associated with Taoism, and that Taoism is a, a crucial element in all these. And, and many, so if we look at the, 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 the Kung Fu or the various forms of Kung Fu that evolved there, often based on mimicking animals. This, uh, this connection with animals is in all the traditions. And when I meant talking about capoeira, you're often, for example, in capoeira, when you're training, you're, you're walking with your hands and feet on the ground in an arch way and in the giraffe position, for example. Now, that action has been going on in China for a couple of thousand years. Old people walk around with their hands and their feet on the ground uh, outside for their back. It's meant to be a very, very good. Now, I'm not recommending that as a medical practitioner, but apparently... That exercise is very, very useful for your, for your spine. But that's been used for thousands of years in China. So we have another connection. And this was a connection that Kano, we can see in relation to Jiguro Kano in Japan. When he's looking for the best practitioner of jujitsu, the, the prior art, he, he believed that the best practitioner would be familiar with bone setting. The connection between medicine and the martial arts was very, very close. And also the connection, I believe, between massage and the martial arts. Because what we see in India, in Kalari and various various sports, or ver various traditions there, you have to be flexible. And in order to, you also have to repair your, your body. And that can be seen in relation to the gladiatorial tradition in, in Rome. Massage was associated with martial arts very very closely and associated with that is the idea of key and the idea of energy and the idea of manipulating energy and warriors in particular had to be able to well of course in zen the meditate and the zazen associated with that tradition uh, to to reach a particular state and they also had to know about their body how to control their body and and, and the energy within their body 
One of my favorite film directors is Alejandro Jodorowsky. Uh, I consider him a very spiritual director, but all of his films involve violence. And I recall an interview in which he was asked about that, and he said, you cannot really address spirituality unless you address violence. And it seems to me that the martial arts offers that possibility. Yeah, I remember you saying about Jodorowsky, and I couldn't remember him, and then I went back and I, said, oh, and I remember seeing him, because you go to the art, the art house film places in London and those films, were, so I recognized them. And I, I find I find that some of the, the violent depictions, and that's the paradox, uh, difficult to understand. Where, you know what, what what's going on some sometimes, uh, and that goes back to Bacon pointing out the uh, pointing out the difficulty. For example, it's funny about Bacon. I was looking at this this picture. This is a picture he did in 1976. He has two figures engaged in, in wrestling, and I mean, we know they're wrestling because he had all the wrestling pictures, boxing pictures. So, but if you look at it, it seems to me like a premonition of the UFC. It seems like an anticipation. You have a framework, an armature. We have a lens. We have the, the human figures in contest. Uh, it, it, it's quite interesting. Yeah, violence is there. but And, and so uh, Bacon was addressing the violence and the nature of the violence. Now, it's a long time since I, I, I've seen those films. You're talking the mole and, and, and El Topo, or whatever the. Uh, uh, and I know yeah. you did. I know you did uh, interesting talk with Dr. Paul Leslie, who also is interested in the martial arts. By the way, is in, uh, interesting, um, and has has recommended a, a book by a person he knows that I'm going to read. But uh, the yeah, I, I think that's the the whole point is we have violence. We have a tendency to violence. We have the shadow, and we have the repression of the shadow. For me, it's like a ball kept under the water sometimes. It's going to come up. So what people in the martial arts do, or what people in amateur boxing do, is they address that, and they channel that, and they put it in context of respect, and they put it in context of other values. And amateur boxing was always, was always a very respectful sport, uh, in, in in Dublin, so people used to. I know people say, "Oh, you're 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 you're, you're dreaming of the, the the good old days or something, and golden days in the past." But people used to. But my father used to box. If they had a, dis a disagreement, they would box with the person there, and then and it was it was over in that sense. You know, people say, "Well, that's antisocial." Well, it's less antisocial than people shooting each other over slights. Uh, so so there's a, there's another important principle which is very very important is. That in any context where you're engaged in combat, whether simulated or uh, practiced or whatever, you, you, you have to work with the person. In judo, you have to have a lot of trust in the person who's throwing you. Because if they don't execute the task at the right speed, you could suffer a lot of damage. So there has to be a lot of co cooperation, a lot of reliance, a lot of trust, and a lot of intimacy uh, in, in the context. So... Um, in that context, people learn about the reality of violence, and they, they learn to recognize the opponent. William James, who is a hero of mine, an intellectual hero of mine, wrote a great essay. He was a pacifist, but he realized that you can't uh, end wars by arguing that war is terrible because there are many positive virtues associated with warfare, like courage and self-sacrifice. And he, so his essay is called The Moral Equivalent of War. And he felt that in, in order to end warfare, we have to have other activities that people can engage in that provide these same positive moral virtues that, that they get in, in warfare. And it strikes me that when you're talking about the martial arts, the need to work with your opponent, to understand your opponent, to develop body awareness to a very refined degree. It, martial arts are, in a sense, a moral equivalent to war in, in the sense that William James meant. The central idea that people like Kano uh, sought to advance when he was promoting judo as an international sport was the idea of the transmutation of violence in the in a channeled form 
and by channeling it we can utilize and make manifest that beast that is within us in a way that promotes harmony and is against discord and promotes accord so there's no question that there's a great transmutational force a great alchemical force which is possible by allowing people to demonstrate the great force which is within inside them in a way which manifests respect in a, in a wider context so that people can appreciate those skills which were important for our survival in the past but need to be reinterpreted, re-embodied in a different context today. So there's no question that for me in the process of spiritual evolution it's very very important as William James uh, uh, indicated that we recognize that these forces are there they're there in our psyche and if we fail to see the shadow we fail to manifest it we fail to transmute those forces they will inevitably arise somewhere else now my great concern is that if we ignore that interpersonal close intimate nature of interaction uh, between two opponents and we transmute that into a techno military industrial context then we're in the doctor strange love scenario where we have those figures who begin to calculate mega deaths and the consequences of violence as if it's just a calculation and i believe that the, that distancing from violence, from the reality of violence, out of sight, out of mind, uh, creates a, a, a great danger. And in a sense, the recognition of violence, the recognition of force, the recognition of the need to limit it, of the need to contextualize it uh, in the context of its reality, and the acceptance of risk as well, uh, creates a situation where we won't have that psychological monster manifesting uh, in another context. And associated with that is that idea of risk, that people are getting so anti-risk these days that they don't let people grow in a proper sense. It's ironic, for example, I think a, a sport which is good for to improve grappling skills is tree climbing or an activity because you use all those skills, gripping, moving in strange positions that help you if you're fighting with someone on the ground. And another element of being on the ground is they are grounded. That, that, that idea of getting in touch with your, with your, pre, your previous self, or your ancient selves uh, in some sense. So sometimes when I was out with my daughters, they'd be climbing trees and, and it was often women, as it happened, would stop and say, that's a very dangerous, why are they climbing the trees? And a lot of the people that would think there was a danger in climbing trees are probably of the same view that we evolved from from apes and that evolutionary that the main activity that we did was climbing trees in the past so it's a bit ironic when in modern context we see everything as a risk-filled activity so the the scientism uh, imprint on society is against risk it's against people taking risk it's against people exploring themselves and i think that's dangerous as well another a final activity dimension which some people regard as part of the martial arts repertoire is although it's not obviously so is the idea of parkour the idea of urban running of of practicing uh, activities in an urban context climbing things skating things jumping things uh, and i've seen practitioners uh, in London do that and I'm very impressed with them young people taking risks other people say well that's a very dangerous activity they shouldn't be climbing them high walls I remember we used to do that in Dublin before it was invented and I admire people testing themselves and testing themselves in a way that doesn't impact on other people so yes my argument is that the lessons that we learn are first interpersonal they're about the growth they're about the health of our body our mind uh, and our spirit and that those those approaches facilitate a wider sense of contributing uh, towards the growth and also in that we can learn particular techniques we don't have to be like 
uh, Mushashi and, and who used the sword and wrote, but wrote about, he, he gave us lessons that in, in the book of five rings that we can apply in other contexts. You know, uh, you can believe in the Buddha, but don't expect him to be there when you have a problem. <laughs> he, won't, he won't arrive. Uh, and also that when you're doing something, do it 100%. When you're preparing, do it with all your will, all your might. And the use of meditation. Meditation is often seen to be a soft thing where you go into yourself. But meditation was really developed to help warriors in very combat uh, stressful situations. So it's okay to to talk about spirituality in context where everything is soft and everything is nice and everything is pink and everything is fluffy. But actually spirituality is most necessary when we're under threat and when there are threats against us and we need to deal with them. And the practice of these activities can provide a dough or a dao or a way to us to uh, to evolve to channel, to grow, to challenge yourself, to recognize the ancient, the shadow, to deal with the paradoxes, to look at the conflicts and not to project some of our, our baser impulse pulses onto inappropriate context and again to appeal to the, the better angels of our nature that are there and to, to, to help them uh, come to the surface. James Tunney, that was beautiful. That was a, 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 a wonderful exposition of, of the heart of the martial arts. Thank you so much for being with me today. And that's the key word, the heart. That's where the, the word courage comes from. Care and courage is, 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 the, is the key idea. Now, the courage that I'd encourage people to have it's not about use of violence. It's about using moral force and also to realize that the courage that we need is to be honest, to deal with problems that we have in different contexts. And instead of mastering swords and mastering strange objects or implements, what we have to do is master symbols and realize that the, the battlefield that will determine the future of the human race is a symbolic one that we have to learn about the control of symbols, the control of concepts, the control of philosophies. And that's what we have to engage in. And we have to come out and we have to take that journey and we have to work in those domains without arms in empty hand context, karate. Well, food for thought and food for future interviews, which I'm looking forward to very much. Once again, James, thank you for being with me. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.